We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. The seas on this morning, June the 6th, pre-dawn hours were rough. They had been whipped over the previous days by the storms that threatened the mission. 7,000 vessels steamed across the channel, 156,000 plus men aboard those ships, and they had one mission. They had one mission. Their mission was the liberation of continental Europe, and by extension, the preservation of Western civilization. D-Day. The day that the world had been collectively holding their breath for was upon them. And on that day, those men would make it ashore and there would be a beachhead established. But yet by the end of that day, over 4,400 allied soldiers would be lost. And on this Independence Day weekend, we must remember that our freedom as Americans is never free. It's never free. It wasn't free in 1776. It's not free in 1944. It's not free in 2019. It comes at the cost of sacrifice and loss. Well, what's true in the natural realm is also true spiritually. And so today as we gather together and we're continuing on our Roman road trip, we're here to talk about the independence, the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ the freedom that is ours in Christ. But my friends, the choir just led us in worship. That freedom did not come without cost. It came at the expense of Calvary. It came at the expense of our Savior and His blood shed for us, for the redemption of our sins, for the justification of our souls. Well, across this summer, our pastor has been leading us on a, on a vacation trip, a Roman road trip, and we've been going through the book of Romans. And in the book of Romans, we've been looking at scripture verses that we wanted to really impress upon our hearts. I don't know how many of you follow the discipline of memorizing scripture, but we thought it would be a good time this summer to express that in the year of the Bible, to memorize the verses that help us internalize the message of the gospel. So in that first week, we were in Romans chapter 1, we talked about the depravity of man, our need for righteousness. And the verse that we memorized that week and the next week was Romans 3.23. Let's all say this together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, in the first three chapters of Romans, we were talking about, again, that need for righteousness. That need for righteousness. The second memory verse that we came upon was Romans 6.23. It's actually part of our text today. Let's say this one together. For the wages of sin is death, but the free God, a gift of God, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin pays wages. Wages. Loss of all that God wants to give resulting in the death. Death of hope and the death of grace in our life. But God gives gifts. And he gave us gift of eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. It leads us to the verse from last week. Last week, Jeff, in Romans chapter 5, was talking about justification. And if you were here, you'll remember he was talking about justification, that in Christ, 
because of this free gift that was extended to us when we received that gift, that God, when he looks at us, looks at us through the righteousness of Christ. We are justified. In the verse from last week, Romans 5, 8, let's say this together. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Well, this week we're going to be continuing in Romans chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans 6, and we're going to be looking at the outcome of this freedom, this gift that God has given us of eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, this week as I was preparing for this message, I thought about my own life. I thought about my own life, my own story. I hope today as we go through this message that you'll think about your story, your life. Now, when I was 18, I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And of all things, it was through a high school baccalaureate. Now, that one to me, I still kind of laugh at. A high school baccalaureate. You know, I was there because we were supposed to be there. This was south of Atlanta. It was kind of a rural community. I graduated from Fayette County High School. It was so rural, you're going to be impressed by this. I was a member of the Future Farmers of America. Yeah. You know, my first encounter with a Texan, I thought about this this morning, was my shop teacher. He was the guy that made me join the Future Farmers of America. His name was Tex. Tex was a young guy. He was a short little banny rooster of a fellow. He had just graduated from college somewhere in Texas. He was mean as a snake. He did not make it an enjoyable year. And when he would lose patience with all of these boys, he'd just say, everybody out, and he'd grab his paddle. And he would just wail the tar out of us. That's my first, my first interaction with the Texan. I should have maybe learned something. I'm not sure. But here I am. I'm graduating. I survived. I'm grateful for that shop class. And, and again, that, that I can make you smile. Think of me as a future farmer of America. I was probably there because I had to be. I had to be. And if I know me well enough, I was probably slumped down in my seat at Sam's Auditorium. And then the pastor who had been asked to bring the message that day came up, and I was still slumped. But then he began to speak. And he began to speak of something I did not know, grace. He spoke of the gospel. And all of a sudden, I'm sure my posture began to straighten itself, and I was on the edge of my seat. I had not heard this, and it was like he was speaking to me. Now, if you had asked me before that night, Rodney, were you a Christian? My answer would have been, absolutely, I'm a Christian. And then I would have very quickly said, and I go to, and I would have named the church. Now, I grew up in a different denominational tradition. And in my tradition growing up, you were confirmed into the church, generally around age 12. That's when I was confirmed. And I'll tell you this, God did something there. He stirred something, but it was something that wasn't followed up on. We moved soon after. We never really engaged in church for the most part again. And that was just kind of set aside. That was just kind of set aside. So there I am. I'm hearing the gospel the first time. Now I'll tell you, for those of you that know this, you're, you're really, you're going to understand it. I was a dull 18-year-old. I was a rule follower. I was very molar, uh, moral. I was duller at 18 than I am at age 60. I mean, for, you know, you'd almost wonder, did you have a pulse at age 18? I'm not the most exciting guy here. I was duller then. 
I was moral. I was moral, I was churched, but my friends, I want you to know, I was lost. I was lost. And on that night in Sam's auditorium, I knew I was lost, but I didn't know what to do with it. But this time, I didn't set it aside. I left, and all across the summer, I processed it. I thought about it. I did all that I knew to do. I didn't talk to anybody about it. I didn't make an appointment with that pastor. But I processed in my mind, and in September, before starting college, I went to his church. And guess what I heard? I heard the same message. I heard grace. I heard the gospel. I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before I left that church that day, I had placed my faith, my trust in Jesus. I had repented of my sins, and I was a new creation. I was what Jesus would say, I was born again. I was in Christ. I had been justified, not because of my morality, not because of my works, because of what God has done for me. And I entered into the freedom of this new life in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. We're going to look at what Paul says about that life, at what it means to live a life of freedom. Look with me beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? By no means. This is something that Paul finds an incongruent statement to the reality, the facts of grace. Absolutely not, he says. Now, he's actually continuing a thought from Romans 5. And let me express this in language that I understand. What Paul is essentially saying in verse 1 here is, does it really matter how I live? If I have trusted Christ, if my ticket has been punched to heaven, does it really matter that I live a life that reflects that. It was such an essential question. Paul will come back in verse 15. He's going to ask it again. And he comes and he says, absolutely, it matters. It does. It matters. Richard Loveless, in his work on dynamics of spiritual life, talks about three aberrations of biblical justification. The first one he talks about is moralism. Now, moralism would take the teaching of scriptures, the words of Jesus, and elevate it to the level of the teachings of any good teacher over the millennia. It's an example. It's a pattern to follow. But the issue with moralism is there's no authority behind it. There's no power. Why? Because it's absent truly the Spirit of God. It doesn't engage repentance. It doesn't engage faith. It's an ethic, and it will fail. He talks about legalism. Now, I told you earlier, I was a rule follower. I'm still a rule follower. Now you employ me to make sure people follow rules, okay? So I'm a rule follower. But what rule following will do is it will lead you to the obvious conclusion that my legalism, my following of the rules, means Jesus plus. Jesus plus my works. And it leads to the idea of works righteousness, And that's a failure. That's an aberration of what it means to be justified in faith. The third one is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer would call cheap grace. The way I would phrase this is, I've been forgiven. I will be forgiven. I can do as I wish. And in verse 1, Paul addresses that and says, absolutely not. 
You know, I believe as he wrote this, he was saying it, and he's getting worked up here. There's some emotion behind this. He's saying, no, absolutely not. Now, what he's not saying is that it's literally impossible for me to sin. Paul knew that it was possible for a Christian to sin. Read chapter 7. He talks about it. He says, oh, wretched man. He knows that we can still sin. But what he is saying is this. He's saying there's a paradox of sin. That if I'm saying that I have trusted Christ, I have been forgiven, I'm in relationship, then how could I possibly continue in my sin? How could I do whatever I want, whenever I want, to whomever I want? He would say, good heaven, that is not congruent with the reality of grace. And his answer is, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, this week in preparation for the message, I thought this is really an attribute of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity has the ability to compartmentalize life. And so we compartmentalize our faith. There is the Sunday me. There's the Sunday me in a suit and a tie in the middle of a 100-degree day. I have my Bible at my side. But is that opposed to the Monday through Saturday me? Does my life, Monday through Saturday, give any evidence of the Sunday me? Here's an easier way to look at it. Do your work associates, do your neighbors, do your social circle, Men, you play golf. Ladies, you play golf. Does your foursome, would they recognize you on Sunday by what they experience Monday through Saturday? And if the answer is no, you've compartmentalized faith. And Paul would say that is not congruent with the life of faith. So look at verse 2. In verse 2 he says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? How of us who, who have died to sin, we have placed faith in Jesus, how could I but not live a life in response to the grace that is ours, this life of freedom? So what Paul is talking about here is that we should not substitute license for freedom. Freedom is not license. That's our first point. Freedom is not license. A gentleman by the name of James Edwards writes this, God's grace is indeed freedom. But it's freedom from sin, not freedom for it. And whoever sees grace as a pretext to get away with as much as possible is simply showing contempt for the Christ who died for sin. The freedom created by grace leads not to license, but to obedience. Obedience honors God's boundless love and responds to that love and the freedom which love creates. We respond to the freedom that love creates. Now look with me in verse 11. He continues this thought. So he says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness." Verse 11 right there, he says, so you must consider. If you grew up with King James, that version would say you must reckon. I like that word. You must reckon yourself. That means to to place to someone else's account. He says, I am to consider my relationship to sin. What is it? I am dead to sin as a believer. 
He said, I am to consider to reckon my relationship to Christ. I am alive to God in Christ Jesus. I'm alive to God. So as a follower, as a believer of Jesus, that is the fact. Spiritually, I am His. And what he's calling us to in this text is to holistically embrace this gift of salvation. That the call to Christ is not just a spiritual call. That we are to embrace Christ with all of our being. That we embrace Christ spiritually. We embrace him intellectually and emotionally. We embrace him physically. And he says in that we are alive in Christ. Now look in verse 12. He says, because of this, if you use NIV, therefore, because of this, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you may obey its evil desires. Now, again, the question is, how? Why? See if this helps. A few weeks ago, we took a family trip to the beach. If you haven't been to the beach with a toddler who has seen the beach and the sand and the ocean for the first time, you've missed a treat. It was a lot of fun. And one of the days, the ocean, the waves were just great. And we were out there and we were having a great time. And my daughter looked at me and said, Dad, do you notice how strong the undertow is today? And she was right. There was a strong pull down the coastline, but there was also a pull out. There was a pull out. And that, to me, captures what Paul is saying right here. That as a believer, there is still the pull of sin. But just as at the beach, I had to fight that undertow to stay where I needed to be so that I wasn't just pulled out into the Atlantic, there is a pull, but we can fight it. Again, in verse 13 and 14, he talks about our bodies, presenting our members as tools of righteousness. So let's make this practical. Now, here's one I think we would all agree with. When we sin with our bodies... We are prone to yield ourselves to ungodly lusts and relationships. Okay, I think most of us would agree with that. Hopefully all of us would. But let's make it a little bit more personal. We sin when we yield the member of our body called the tongue to gossip. Now, my friends, that's present in this church and in every church. And when we yield our tongue to gossip... We are yielding our tongue to sin, the member of our body. We sin when we use our hands to take which we've not earned. So the question there is, how do we conduct our business relationships? How do we conduct our business relationships? Would those I do business with with recognize that I'm a follower of Jesus? And so as you look at this, he's talking about the total person, the total being, and that we are to be an instrument of his grace. So how do we fight that undertow, that pull to sin? We do it actively. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will what? He will flee from you. Paul says in verse 13 here, do not present, do not present. What's he saying? Be active in life not passive. Do not allow the undertow of sin to pull you out and away from all that you hold dear dear and true. Actively present yourselves. Don't just be a victim to sin. Don't become a slave to sin, but be a slave to righteousness. Well, how do we do that? Well, at Park Cities, we say that we are called to follow Jesus, what? 
to follow Jesus every day. It's daily habits. It's disciplines. It's, it's being in His Word. We follow Jesus every day. So, as believers, we need to make sure, point number one, that we don't substitute license for freedom. The second one is, we have a freedom to follow. A freedom to follow. Look with me in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? And he answers it again, by no means. Again, the same question. It was such an essential question to the Roman church. He comes back, and it's like he has a highlighter, and he underscores it. He asks the question, and once again he says, absolutely not. And then look how he answers it in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one to whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Now, if you don't remember anything else I say, I want you to remember this. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. You belong to that which you choose to serve. You belong, I belong to that which I choose to serve. That's what Paul's saying here. I either choose to serve sin or I choose to serve righteousness. And if I'm following Jesus every day, then my life, my actions will give evidence of that. It'll be reflective in my lifestyle. It'll be reflective in my habits and in my relationships. It will be a reflection. And what Paul is saying here leads us to this idea of sanctification. We're being called into likeness of Jesus. We're growing in Christ. And sanctification, simply put, is just becoming that which God has already declared us to be. He's declared me to be righteous. And Paul's saying we are to be a slave of righteousness, and as that happens, I'm growing in likeness of Jesus. He even uses the word sanctification later here in the chapter. So I would hope in my life, all these years after F.A. Sam's auditorium, all these years later, I trust that I have far more likeness to Jesus than I did at that point. So let me ask you a few diagnostic questions. These helped me this week. Does my calendar, does your calendar give evidence of your faith? Now, you may say, Rodney, you're a minister of this church. We would hope your calendar gives evidence. You'd hope that. Well, I would say, as people who are part of this church family, I would hope your calendar gives evidence of it. I would hope that you find time to open the Word of God that it's not just a Sunday tool that goes in the back seat to be dusted off the next Sunday. I would hope that you have time to enter into a time of prayer, to express gratitude to God, to listen to His voice. I would hope that. So much more we could say there. I would hope that my talents and my giftedness are stewarded to the glory of God. What about you? You know, when I look out in this congregation, let's be honest, there are few congregations anywhere in America that are more gifted, that bring as much to the party as you do. I could say that in the Great Hall this morning. I could say it in Espanol. God has graced us and gifted us with incredible wealth of people. But the question is, do we as individuals steward those gifts and those talents? Do we steward those gifts and talents to the glory of God? 
because that will reflect and then how we corporately do it. It reflects then on how we're able to be an instrument of redemption here within our city and the broader world. What's my attitudes towards money and possessions? You know, we did a uh, survey back in the spring at church, and our pastor's going to come back and we'll talk about it, I believe, this fall. But one of the questions that was asked was, do you ever pray about purchases? Hmm. Okay, Marie and I went shopping today, or yesterday. I don't think, honey, we prayed about anything we bought. But the question is, when I'm looking at my dollars, my money, do I pray and do I ask God, how might God use what I give to His glory? Several years ago, there was a lady here in the church that many of you would know. She passed. She's with Jesus. And in her memorial service, there was a tribute given where her check register was read. Ever heard of anything like that? Now, it was done in such a way that was really honoring to God. It did not glorify her whatsoever. But what it did share was she had a commitment to Christ, a commitment to His church, and a a commitment to kingdom ministry. It was really a challenge. So the question is, if you were able to enter into my check register, to my accounts, would my accounts, would your accounts give any evidence that you follow Jesus? That's what Paul's saying here. This is a very practical message. Does my lifestyle give evidence? You know, my wife has this thing. She wants the trash taken out every night. I don't care if there's just two pieces of paper in there. She wants it out of the house. Now, when we married, I signed on for for trash duty. I thought when we have kids that might pass, it never did. And so I have the ability, the pleasure, if I'm at Chick-fil-A, it's my pleasure to take the trash out every night. That's my intention. But what if I forget? What if I sometimes choose to forget? And what happens is, if that trash begins to pile, what does it do to our home? What's it do to our home? And so the question there is, what's more important to Maria? My profession, my intention, or my action? And what Paul is saying here, as we follow Christ... It is our action that gives evidence of our profession of faith. In Galatians chapter 5, he talks about what a life looks like like that. He says it's a life filled with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Who doesn't want a life like that? That is a life empowered, led by the Spirit. Now, do we always get it right? No. But we always continue to strive to be a slave to righteousness. But what we forget is, just prior to those verses in Galatians 5 and Galatians 19, he talks about the works of the flesh. And he says they're evident. Just as I can see love and joy and peace in someone's life, we can also see the works of the flesh. And he says those are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery. You may say, I'm okay, 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 okay. Look at our culture. He goes on to say enmity, strife, jealousy. You know, even this past week, we do a a Bible study at times with our staff, and our pastor led a Bible study. He talked about jealousy in pastors' lives. Paul says that's a work of the flesh. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. 
And what he's saying here is that if I allow the desires of my life to work themselves out to conclusion, what happens is it gives mockery to my profession that I follow Jesus, or at worst, I never have. Remember my story. I was moral, I was church, and I was lost. I was lost. Do you think anyone ever takes up a habit thinking it's going to one day control their lives and make them a slave? I don't think so. But remember this, we are, we belong to what we choose to obey. So again, if I exercise that freedom and choose to follow Jesus, if I choose to exercise choices that honor Christ, I'm a slave to righteousness. And my friends, this matters. It matters to you. It matters to you. It matters to those that love you. If you're a member of this church, I want you to know this matters to you. Your conduct of life, how you keep your marriage vows, how you conduct your business, how you follow Christ, the fact of you're a slave to Christ, it matters to this church. We are a family. We are a community. But my friends, most of all, it matters to God. It matters to God. Now look with me in verse 19 as we conclude. Paul keeps talking. He keeps emphasizing this. This is an issue in our day. It was an issue in his day. He says, now I'm speaking in human terms because you have natural limitations. But just as you once presented your members of, uh, as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. What he's essentially saying here is that when you look at your life and you look at what you follow, what you obey, in terms that we can understand, he says, what is the return on your investment? And what he tells them is, when we follow the flesh, when we are a slave to unrighteousness, to sin, there's a return. And he says, those are the things that you're now ashamed of. He says, those are the things that lead to death. They are the antithesis of the love, the joy, the peace that every human heart desires. He says, there's a return on your investment. But he also says, there's another return. For those of us that follow Christ, there's a return. And that return is found in the grace that is ours, the freedom that is ours. And we are growing in the likeness of Jesus. He says, there's a return. There's a return on our life. What we choose to obey is to whom we belong. Our pastor writing about this wrote this, We've been set free from sin and no longer need to hold captive to it. We celebrate with great joy that we're no longer slaves to sin, but we live in the freedom, a life that points to Christ. We live in the freedom of a life that points to Christ. But my friends, that's a choice. Our choices matter. They matter. He concludes with verse 23, again our memory verse. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The free gift is a gift from God. You know, at Park Cities, 
we speak of three irreducible questions. Three questions. What is God saying to me? You know, I believe that every message calls for a response. Every message calls for a response because if you're here today and you're following Christ, the Spirit of God is speaking to you, and it may be keep going, keep growing. What's God saying to you? What would He have you to do today? I think back again to my story. That night when I first heard a word of grace, what is God saying to you? The second question is, how will you obey? How will I obey? What would God have me do response to his text today? What he's saying? What he's saying to you? You may be here today, and in the very heart of the summer on a holiday weekend, you may be moral, you may be churched, But my friend, you may be lost, and today's the day. Don't do as I first did and just take it and put it on the shelf. You need to pray through this, process this, talk to others. I didn't have anyone to talk to. Talk to others. What is God saying to you? You may be here today, and it may be that he's calling you to be a part of a church family, to be a part of a family that will love and encourage you in this relationship of what it means to follow Christ This may be the day. This may be the day for someone to follow in baptism. You've made a profession of faith, but you've never publicly declared it through your baptism. So how will you obey? What would you do? The third one is, whom will I tell? We want to make that very easy for you. At the conclusion of this service, right out those back doors in the Narthex lobby, I'll be there along with others. We'd love to meet with you. We'd love to talk with you about what God is doing in your life. If you'd like for someone just to pray with you, we'll do that. If you'd like to come and join this church or whatever your needs are, we would be there to assist you. But every message demands a response. And the freedom that we have this day, let us exercise it at this moment to our benefit and to the very glory of God because that's the call of Christ this day. May we pray together? Our Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather as a family of faith. And Lord, we pray this day that you would speak to our hearts where we are in life, about what we're following. Lord, help us to make a choice to our benefit, but to your great glory. I pray for those here today that may not know Christ. They've gone all this time moral and churched, And yet they've never taken that step of faith. Today could be the day. So, Father, whatever your call is this day, we pray that we would obey. And we ask it in your great name and to our benefit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.